Good morning. The title of the message is part two. <laughs> what about those scary verses in Hebrews 10? <laughs> uh, so this morning I will be continuing to minister from the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. The last time I ministered, I ran out of time before I ran out of message. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up stopping short of my goal of getting all the way through. I really overshot it. <laughs> but hopefully this morning we will finish up the scary verses as well as the rest of chapter 10. So to begin with, let me remind you of the context and audience relevance of the book of Hebrews. Good interpretation of scripture always comes from understanding the historical context, the scriptural context, and the proper audience relevance. The author who wrote to the Hebrew baby believers, he wrote it to them. He knew them personally. He actually knew who he was writing to. That's why he could, without any reservation, tell them that they were big babies. Because <laughs> they didn't understand their righteousness. They didn't understand the continuously effective sacrifice of Christ. The once for all sacrifice. The once for all sacrifice for all sin. <laughs> once for all sacrifice for all people. <laughs> they didn't understand the all part. And because they didn't understand the all part, they kept going to temple and taking lambs and taking tithes. They were trying to work by the law instead of by love and by faith. These Hebrew baby believers had always been required to bring another sacrifice when they had sinned if they wanted to continue to be considered right with God, continue to be understood as being right in his sight so that they could also have his protection. That was why they were doing what they were doing. Life was a living hell for them. Their religion was illegal. So not only did the government hate them and try to kill them, all of their friends and relatives were doing the same. <laughs> uh, and so it was very, very difficult because of their mindset. This, I have to bring another lamb when I sin to be right with God. They weren't convinced in their heart that Jesus all by himself was forever enough. So since that wasn't a settled issue in their heart, they kept sneaking off the temple. <laughs> trying to get more forgiveness. Because for them, right standing with God always required another sacrifice. In fact, it was so required and so indelibly marked on them because they knew that they needed sacrifices every single day. At the temple, there were sacrifices on their behalf morning and night. Because as a nation... <laughs> They were going to screw it up. <laughs> so the sacrifices were made for them because God knew they were going to mess up as a nation. So they had this constant, I got to get right with God. I got to get right with God, which is old covenant thinking. New covenant thinking is, thank you, Jesus, I am right with God. <laughs> so they always thought, I need more forgiveness. Much of the church today is the same way. Oh, I sinned. I fell short. I made a mistake. 
I need more forgiveness. I need you to bring me back into your presence. I need, no, absolutely not. <laughs> that is old covenant thinking. That is slapping Jesus in the face saying, what you did isn't good enough for me. I'm going to bring my offering of begging and pleading and promises to do better, and then you will forgive me. Mm -mm. Once for all. And yet so much of the church struggles with once for all, even 2,000 years later. <laughs> Their minds and hearts had been steeped in legalism and animal sacrifice. So even though they had received Jesus, their previous way of life was still stuck in their heads, <laughs> causing them to fear that maybe Jesus wasn't actually enough. Because one sacrifice for all sins just did not seem right. <laughs> it didn't seem right. It was never right under the old covenant. So this new covenant idea of a once for all, they struggled. How can this be right? Shouldn't it be Jesus plus more lambs? <laughs> Jesus plus more confessions? Jesus plus more? You see, the flesh would prefer to help Jesus. <laughs> Instead of trust Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, the church today still struggles with the same exact problem. The idea of believing that I need more forgiveness or a new forgiveness. And that's only because they have not shut the door on the old covenant and understood that the new covenant does not work like the old. It is a completely new way of salvation. Under the new covenant, God himself, in and through Christ Jesus, solved the sin problem between God and all mankind and eliminated the need for any more sacrifices to deal with sin. All sin has already been dealt with through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So the new covenant does not function like the old that dealt with one sin at a time, lamb after lamb. But many believers unknowingly treat Jesus' sacrifice as if it's no better than that of an animal that only works once at a time. It's not true. It's a once-for-all, once-forever salvation. Under the new covenant, sin no longer separates us from our Father or Jesus or even the Holy Spirit. He will not leave you when you fall down. He will insist on picking you up <laughs> and brushing you off and telling you once again, you are mine and I love you forever. We can do this together. We are forever forgiven and translated into a brand new kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son. We have been changed. We are new creations, born of God and adopted by God. He says, being born of me is not enough. I got to adopt you too. <laughs> I want you to know you are mine and you are mine and you are mine. And I've made you my son so that you can learn to rule and reign with me. It is the God and sons program. <laughs> we are sons so that we can rule and reign on this earth 
We don't have to wait to heaven to rule and reign. What good would that do? <laughs> is God really going to need us to rule and reign in heaven? I don't think so. But does he need us to rule and reign here on earth? Absolutely. We are sons. And he has made us to be continually right with him forever. And we can see this truth in Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he, Jesus, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In the Greek, the words forever are two separate words, which is why the King James separates it. Nowadays, we don't. But it was two separate words, for and ever. The for is the Greek word ice, and it means to or into. The definition says it's a primary preposition, to or into, indicating the point reached or entered. And then the second word, ever, is the Greek word dianikes, and according to the Strong's Concordance, it means carried through, that is, perpetually and continually, forever. So when we accepted Jesus, he picked us up and carried us over into a place called forever. <laughs> a spiritual place where we are continually and perpetually right with our Father, regardless of our behavior. Nothing we do has the power to undo our new creation reality as sons of God. We are all, both male and female, sons of God, learning to rule and reign on this earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as sons of God, we can be loving and grateful sons who listen to the voice of our Father. Or <laughs> we can be immature sons who purposely or ignorantly disregard the voice of our Father. But nothing can stop us from forever being his sons and his heirs. My children are my children forever. <laughs> there is nothing that can change the fact that my children are my children. doesn't matter how old I am or how old they are. They are my children. <laughs> and so it is with my father, my heavenly father. We are forever his children. He birthed us in this new place called forever, where sin can never ruin us again, not spiritually. It will be happy to ruin your life here on earth. <laughs> we don't choose sin. It ruins everything it touches. But sin will never, never touch our spirit. Our Father proclaims, you are mine, and I am yours forever. Picked us up and carried us over into the place called forever, eternally. We are forever, perpetually, and continually one spirit with the Lord. Now, a lot of the church has an absolute fit <laughs> when they hear this kind of thing. They are very much like these Hebrew baby believers. They still have an old covenant mentality of a temporary right standing with God based on performance and sacrifice. Under the old covenant when they sinned, they were not considered to be in right standing with God until they brought another animal sacrifice. But their sacrifices were only enough to cover over their sin until the next sin. <laughs> 
So the old covenant only ever offered them a temporary cleansing, not a once for all cleansing. This is why Jesus and the new covenant are so much better than Moses and the old covenant. Because Jesus has given us an eternal and perpetual salvation. An eternal and perpetual right standing with God our Father as a gift of his grace. His absolutely free loving kindness. So we cannot earn our way into becoming sons of God and neither can we earn our way out of becoming sons of God. Once a son of God, always and forever, a son of God. Not because of anything we do, but because of everything that he has done. And this is exactly what the first half of chapter 10 explains. So when we examine the second half of chapter 10, it has to be in the light of the first half. Because God isn't going to tell us that we are eternally, spiritually, and continually safe and then turn around and say, psych, just kidding. (laughs) You need to keep right on being afraid (laughs) so that you can undo what I've done to you. It's a big lie. But when believers get to some of these scary verses, that is exactly what they think it means because they don't know that they need to apply proper historical context, proper scriptural context, and proper audience relevance. They think it's written to them, and it's not. It's written for us, not to us. The historical context is the impending judgment that was promised to unbelieving Israel under the old covenant that was about to take place within a few short years. The audience relevance are the HBBs, the Hebrew baby believers, (laughs) alive at that time, (laughs) who were wanting to go back into Judaism as a way of escaping persecution and as a way of saving their lives physically and maybe spiritually because they weren't convinced of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And the reason they were tempted to do this was because they were not fully persuaded in their hearts about the sufficiency of Jesus's once-for-all sacrifice. So they wanted to keep offering animal sacrifices to make them feel better. (laughs) They didn't want to believe. They wanted to feel better. (laughs) And because they were so steeped in legalism, there is this transition that has to take place when you've been indoctrinated into legalism and you think everything you think and say and do is going to undo what Jesus did. And so it is this mind renewal, step by step, year after year. (laughs) It is a lifelong process of learning to rest completely in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus instead of looking to ourselves to produce life and life more abundance. So these Hebrew baby believers were trying to assure their own hearts that just in case Jesus wasn't enough, (laughs) I did the right thing. (laughs) they didn't understand that what they thought they were achieving by taking lambs was not actually possible they were so used to quote unquote paying for their sin with an offering why wouldn't God accept Jesus plus lambs if I'm paying for my sin I'm helping Jesus (laughs) why wouldn't that work well because the debt has already been paid They're trying to pay for something 
that's already been paid. You know, if you try to repay for your phone bill or, or whatever, they will tell you you can't do that. You can pay ahead. They'll let you do that. But you can't pay for what's already been paid for. That's the point. They thought they were going to get more forgiveness because they thought they needed more forgiveness. And there is no more forgiveness to get. It's only by faith in Christ. Because this going back to temple was such a real temptation for the HBBs, the author needed to correct their old covenant understanding of sins still being able to be covered over at the temple. Hebrews 10.26. This is one of those scary ones. <laughs> for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That's King James. I have it for you also in the Passion Translation. For if we continue to persist in deliberate sin after we have known and received the truth, there is not another sacrifice for sin to be made for us. Now, the first half of chapter 10 very plainly tells us that there is no more need for additional animal sacrifices due to additional sin because we have been made continually and eternally right with God the Father through faith in Jesus. So what is he talking about? <laughs> what is the willful sin that he's talking about? The willful sin is the taking of lambs to the temple. You can't do this sin. <laughs> You can't find yourself a lamb and try to take it to a Jewish priest to offer for forgiveness of sin. It's not possible that there is no temple. There is no priest. There's nothing available. There is no way. That's why God has never let the temple be rebuilt, because Christians would go back to doing that. They would be convinced by the Jewish population that Jesus isn't enough. Yes, we have to bring lambs. It's Jesus plus more, which would only lead them to trusting in themselves and not trusting in Christ. Taking the lambs to temple was a public display of unbelief in the sufficiency of what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. So if they chose to continue to do that, they needed to know that there is no more acceptable sacrifices for sin at the temple. Going to the temple would not achieve what they wanted it to achieve. And that's because they could not pay a debt that is no longer outstanding. Jesus paid it all for all people, for all time, and for all sin. There remains no more effective sacrifices at the temple. The author wants his readers to understand that they need to place their faith in Jesus alone. Otherwise, the only thing waiting for them is going to be verse 27. <laughs> but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And in the Passion, but this would qualify one for the certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the raging fire ready to burn up his enemies. Sound like the gospel? <laughs> no, that's not the gospel. <laughs> this particular warning is not for us today. It was only for those alive at that time in history. And it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, both of which would be burned to the ground in A.D. 70. This is not a threat for believers today, that sin can still send them to hell. How do we know this? The author gives us an example in the next verse. In the King James, Hebrews 10, 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. What was the penalty? Death. 
It doesn't say, and they, will, they were sent to hell because they <laughs> forsake the covenant. No, they died. The punishment was death. This is what he's trying to tell these Hebrew baby believers. There's death over in that camp. If you go back into Judaism thinking that's going to save your hiney, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so the author tells them that what was promised to the idolatrous Israelites under the Old Covenant was death. When you go look that up, it's talking about the Israelites committing idolatry. And they, you had to have enough witnesses to confirm that you were actually guilty of this. You couldn't just point out people you didn't like. <laughs> they, were, they were committing idolatry. Let's kill them. No, <laughs> it didn't work that way. <laughs> so the author asked them, again, to think reasonably. And he asked them the second scary scriptures. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. In the Passion, it sounds like this. How much more severely do you suppose a person deserves to be judged, who has contempt for God's Son, and who scorns the blood of the new covenant that made him holy, and who mocks the Spirit who gives him grace? Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that the author refers to those who are tempted to go back into Judaism for additional forgiveness and physical safety, were those who were already sanctified by the blood of the new covenant. The word sanctified simply means made holy. And that simply means made his. By birth and by adoption, we are his. <laughs> and it's past tense. Has already been made holy, finished, set apart, as his. <laughs> That's who was thinking about going back into temple worship. So the author has to be referring to born-again believers who had not yet been completely convinced that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for the continual and perpetual forgiveness and the continual and perpetual access to our Father. I say this because there are scholars who want to try to quote-unquote fix these verses. <laughs> To fit into their theology. So they teach that these verses refer to fake believers. These aren't true believers who would do this. <laughs> because in their understanding, only fake believers would commit willful sin. But does that make sense? <laughs> no one in their right mind would pretend to be a Christian at that point in history. Everybody was out to kill you. Why would you be pretending to be a Christian? That's just dumb. It would be the same as somebody pretending to be Jewish while they live in Nazi Germany. <laughs> Nobody was going to be stupid enough to do that. <laughs> so these have to be real baby believers. And that's what he calls them. Your babies in your understanding. We got to fix your understanding. There's nothing wrong with your salvation. There's only something wrong with your understanding of your salvation. So the only fixing that these verses need is for us to put them into their historical context, their scriptural context, and apply them to the appropriate audience. When we do that, these verses make complete sense. And no born-again believer needs to be afraid that their particular sins and failures can still send them to hell, because they can't. We have a forever forgiveness, a continual forgiveness, a perpetual right standing with God our Father based on Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And again, many in church today 
get fighting mad when they hear this kind of thing because they think we're saying that it doesn't matter if you sin. And in one sense, and only one sense, it doesn't. Our sin doesn't have the power to change our forever access to our Father or our forever right standing with him. So in that sense, yes, sin doesn't matter. It can, however, change our lives drastically and in very painful ways, which is exactly why the author of the Hebrews is warning these Hebrew baby believers not to go back into Judaism because he knows how lethal ignoring God can be. And this is one of the lessons that we can learn from the HBBs. We can see that purposely choosing to sin, which can only be done by ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit, can be lethal, literally. But not just to our bodies, but to our relationships and our health and our finances, and into particular, our faith. (laughs) Choosing to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit affects our ability to trust our Father. Constantly ignoring the voice of Holy Spirit can make a believer dull of hearing. And the word dull in the Greek means sluggish, lazy, or stupid. (laughs) I love the fact that it says it can make you stupid. (laughs) Because that's really what it does. (laughs) Those who continue to ignore the voice of Holy Spirit will become sluggish or slow to listen. They may become too lazy to give God's word and God's voice their full attention. And they become stupid because they harden their own heart against the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's always stupid. Not purposing to listen to God will thwart their faith so that they can't take hold of what God has promised them even though God wants them to have it. We have to have a fully persuaded heart to apprehend what God has promised. And these Hebrew baby believers were warned in chapter 4 of Hebrews not to neglect the voice of the Holy Spirit like their forefathers had done. They were so used to listening to the voice of the law, the voice of Moses, the voice of legalism, that listening to Holy Spirit was kind of set back on the back porch there. You know, sometimes I hear him. No, you hear him every minute of every day, even if you don't realize it. Because he is one with us, and he is always communicating with us. When the Old Covenant Israelites came out of Egypt, they traveled right up next to that promised land, and God told them to go in and take the land. But the book of Hebrews also tells us that they could not enter in because they had become dull of hearing, and their hearts were not fully persuaded that God could actually empower them to overcome their enemies. So they said, uh, no scary giants, no thanks. We're not able. They looked to themselves and their own ability instead of to their father and his ability. So they did not go in. They did not take possession of the life that God had promised them. Not because God didn't want them to have it. Not because God was punishing them for not having faith. (laughs) But only because they had not treasured the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the word of God tells us that faith comes. Faith is activated by hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so important for us to always pay attention to the voice of the Holy Spirit so that he can convince our hearts of our Father's truth 
that activate the faith he's already given us, whereby we are enabled to take possession of our Father's promises. That's why the author of Hebrews wrote this book, so that the Hebrew baby believers could be persuaded by the indwelling Holy Spirit of the truths about Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice for all sin, which would activate their faith in God's word and promises which would empower them to trust in Christ alone, which would enable them to not fall back into Judaism, which would keep them from being tortured and killed by the Roman armies. The author of Hebrews is trying to keep these Hebrew baby believers alive because he knows what's going to come upon Jerusalem. And they did too, actually. But if a Hebrew baby believer would purposely, (laughs) purposely choose to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit, and the truths presented in this book, and go back into law-keeping and animal sacrifice anyway, then what would that Hebrew baby believer deserve? That's the question of verse 29. The answer is, technically, they would deserve the judgment that was going to fall upon Jerusalem and the temple, even though that wasn't what God wanted for them. Again, the author wants his readers to think reasonably. What would a Hebrew baby believer deserve? if they treated the Son of God and his sacrifice as if they were worthless and contemptible and not worthy of any respect or consideration. Now, because of our faith in Jesus, we don't get what our sins spiritually deserve. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) We get what we don't deserve. We get our Father's grace. We get his divine enablement. We get his voice always at work in us. We get everything that is good. We don't get what we deserve. And he's simply asking the question to them. Think about this. Why would you go back to what doesn't work when you have the one who has done all of the work? However, this grace can only be apprehended by faith. And in chapter 11, we're going to get into faith because that's the whole point. The whole first chapter is, come on, let's believe in the grace of God, how big it is, how wonderful it is, how complete it is, how he has done everything and given it to us freely. Grace, 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 grace. But if you want this grace to work in your life, you got to believe. you got to apprehend. you got to be persuaded in your heart that it's true. In order for these Hebrew baby believers to participate in the great escape that Jesus said was coming, They needed to stay faithful. And these were baby believers wobbling all over the place. (laughs) Their salvation was not in danger. Their physical lives were in danger. They needed to stay full of faith, being fully persuaded by the voice of the Holy Spirit so that they could continue to endure hardship and persecution and not give in to its pressure. It's hard because circumstances can speak very loudly to our hearts and tell us that it's all over, nothing good is coming, it's all gloom and doom, unless, of course, we know in whom we have believed and know that he is well able to work all things for our good and that he is well able to take us into our promised land, that he is well able, and all all we have to do is trust in him. God did not want these Hebrew baby believers to be deceived into participating in a judgment that did not belong to them. The judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem was just and right for those who had rejected the Messiah and who had never changed their mind about him. 
Jesus had given Israel plenty of proof of his true identity as the Son of God and as the prophesied Messiah. And those who knowingly and purposely refused to trust in Jesus for their physical and spiritual safety would do so out of stubborn, willful unbelief. They would be like those who looked into the very face of God in Christ Jesus, knowing that he was from God, and yet still cried out, crucify him. These were the unbelieving Israelites who deserved the judgment that was promised to Israel in the Old Covenant, which is why the author doesn't want these Hebrew baby believers to try to save themselves by joining themselves to an unbelieving Hebrew community. Their faith in Jesus would be destroyed. Their salvation wouldn't. (laughs) but their faith would, (laughs) and then their physical lives would be destroyed too. The author wants his readers to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and to allow Holy Spirit to convince their hearts of the truths presented in this letter, which would then activate their faith so that they could completely put their trust in Jesus alone, which would empower them to apprehend what God had promised to them, which was a heart at rest through faith and the great escape from the coming judgment. God had already granted these Hebrew baby believers everything they needed for life and godliness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All they needed to do was trust God and do what he was telling them to do, which was to stay faithful to the truths of Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice and to not let their fear and difficult circumstances talk them out of apprehending both the rest and the safety. He had safety waiting for them, but they had to wait (laughs) to drive home the point that God had only promised judgment to unfaithful Israel. The author quotes from chapter 32 of Deuteronomy about what would happen to those who tried to worship the one true and living God while simultaneously trying to get what they wanted from false gods. Verses 30 and 31. For we know him, God, that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And the same verse in the Passion. For we know him who said, I have the right to take revenge and to pay them back for their evil. And also the Lord will judge his own people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Passion translation. It is the most terrifying thing of all to come under the judgment of the living God. These verses are not about New Testament believers in Jesus. These verses are promises made to unfaithful, unbelieving, rebellious Jews under the Old Covenant. (laughs) These are not for us. He's talking to Jews who knew this. They knew that God had promised in Deuteronomy 28 all the curses. You leave the covenant and you act a mess. This is what's coming upon you. And that is exactly what happened to Jerusalem. They knew this. So this judging of God's people is the old covenant Hebrews, not the new covenant Hebrews. (laughs) It would be the most terrifying thing of all to happen to unbelieving Israel. And of course, it's absolutely true that no one in their right mind would choose to come under the judgment of God, the judgment God had promised to unbelieving Israel. It was truly horrible. Above and beyond which that you could ask or imagine <laughs> when as far as judgment comes. 
And Jesus in Matthew 24 tells us that this particular judgment would be like nothing that had ever happened to Israel before. And Israel had been really good at getting herself put under God's judgment throughout the Old Testament. She was always being naughty. <laughs> but this last judgment would be almost unspeakably awful. And we can see this in verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 24. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The phrase, God's elect, was another way of saying Israel. He was talking to Israel at the time about Israel. He wasn't talking to New Covenant believers about New Covenant believers. And history points to the veracity of this prophecy. If the siege against Jerusalem had continued any longer than it did, there would not have been any unbelieving Hebrews left. Out of over a million Jews left in the city when the war started, only about 100,000 escaped with their lives. And again, even though God is credited with bringing this judgment, God really didn't do anything to unbelieving Israel except let her have her own way. And that's only because she would not have it any other way. So, are these so-called scary verses scary for believers today? No, not at all. Not when we realize that we are reading somebody else's mail from 2,000 years ago. <laughs> we need to remember when we read the book of Hebrews that it was not written to us, but it was written for us to learn from. So we need to remember that these warnings about judgment within the book are not for believers today. There is no more judgment coming upon us or Israel or even the world. And Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. I have it for you in the AFV version. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. The now was back then. When our Father laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all, so that Jesus would take all of the sin and iniquities into death, thereby paying the sin debt of all mankind for all sin and for all time on the cross. Verse 32. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. I like this version because it did not add the words men. I will draw all men to myself because men is not the context. The context is the previous verse. What is he talking about? Judgment. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all judgment to myself. Verse 33. But he said this to signify by what death he would die. The cross. Jesus took upon himself the judgment for all sin, for all men, and for all time. So all of the Jews could have escaped that judgment. But they stubbornly and pridefully refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. So they received the judgment that God had promised to unfaithful Israel under the Old Covenant. In other words... 
they got what they really wanted, their own way. Now, at this point in chapter 10, the author seems to abruptly change direction. <laughs> it's like, this is all scary, now let's move on. <laughs> he stops warning them about what will come upon unfaithful Israel and begins to remind them of their own past faithfulness to Jesus and to their faithfulness to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of affliction. After the light of Christ had shone into their hearts as Hebrew believers, their lives became really hard <laughs> due to persecution by family, friends, and the Romans. They had lots of afflictions. Verse 33. Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions, of them that were so used. These believers stood faithful with other believers who were publicly persecuted physically and publicly denounced verbally. These were real believers. We can't try to fix this saying these are not real believers. <laughs> these are real believers who had a really hard place in their life and they're going to try and save themselves. Never a good idea. <laughs> Let Jesus save you. <laughs> Verse 34, for ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Again, the author personally knows these people that he's writing to. They had previously exhibited their faithfulness to Christ by ministering to the author of Hebrews when he or she was in prison for their faith. He also commends them for how they handled having all of their possessions taken away from them. Joyfully. Could you do that? <laughs> Could you be happy about that? <laughs> but that's how they handle it. <laughs> no one is joyful in the midst of having all their stuff stolen from them unless the Holy Spirit has convinced them of their relationship with their Heavenly Father who just happens to own everything. He is the one who can restore. As believers in Jesus, we are possessors of a permanent and heavenly wealth, a forever forgiveness and a forever access to our Heavenly Father and all of His goodness. In other words, He's telling them that they are experienced in bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So continue to listen to the Holy Spirit and let him convince you yet again about the sufficiency of Jesus. Verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. According to the Strong's Concordance, the Greek word translated as confidence is the word parousia. All outspokenness, that is, frankness, bluntness, publicity, by implication, assurance, boldness, particularly boldness of speech. So in the midst of hardship, we're not supposed to throw away our boldness of speech. Hmm, where would we need boldness of speech? <laughs> this word includes the idea of being confident, open, and plain. And this really should make us think of Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us come boldly 
unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. Don't throw away your confidence in the fact that you have forever access where you can just march right into Dad's office and say, Dad, I need help. <laughs> Dad, I fell down, and I need you to encourage me again. God, I need, fell down. I need you to tell me again that it's going to be okay. God, I need you to speak to me one more time. To come boldly to our Father is to come with great confidence because we know nothing can ever separate us from our Father and His mercy and His grace. Our Father's mercy is His great compassion. Compassion feels the pain and suffering of another and then acts to alleviate it. And grace is our Father's unmerited favor and His divine enablement through the Holy Spirit. Our Father doesn't expect us to do anything in our own strength. <laughs> That's why he bids us to come boldly to him so that we can receive his help, his wisdom, his strength. He wants to strengthen our inner man <laughs> so that we can continue to stand faithful unto Christ in the midst of feeling weak and helpless. Our feelings don't know what's true. <laughs> Jesus knows what's true. <laughs> so the author is saying, hang on to your faith in Jesus because faith brings forth the reward of believing as long as we continue to believe. And we don't give up on trusting our Father and our Jesus. We should expect to see and experience what we're believing for as long as it's in accordance with God's word. He won't help you rob a bank. He won't help you commit crimes. He won't help you do things that are naughty. And so don't ask. <laughs> but you can believe him for everything, for life and godliness. And these Hebrew baby believers were believing for the great escape. The escape from the coming judgment because they had grown dull of hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And they had also grown weary of waiting and doubting of God's approval and promise. They had let the old covenant come in and start to thwart their faith. Verse 36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. I have added some red words here. Hebrews 10.36. If you look up the word have, it refers to having the ability. And the word need actually would be better translated employ. So it would say, ye have the ability to employ patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. He says, you have what you need to do the waiting that's required. <laughs> you don't have to like waiting. <laughs> but you do have the ability through the Holy Spirit to wait for the fulfillment of the promise. The Greek word translated as patience, according to the Strong's Concordance, is hupomone. And it means cheerful or hopeful endurance, consistency, constancy. It's translated enduring, patient, patience, continuance, and waiting. <laughs> so it means that they needed to allow Holy Spirit to give them joy, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, while they waited on the promise in full assurance of faith. They could wait patiently and joyfully if they stood in full assurance of faith in the goodness of their Father. 
verses 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. These verses reference several verses from the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2, where the Lord speaks to Habakkuk about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Hmm, doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) Habakkuk was having a complaint. He said, the government is corrupt. Everything is running amok. God, why aren't you doing something about all this evil? (laughs) He gives Habakkuk the promise of judgment coming upon Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So he's like, what are you going to do about this, God? (laughs) You see, he knew the promise of Deuteronomy 28. If Israel forsook God and ran amok, there was a promise. All of these curses would come upon them. So he's like, it's about time for judgment here, God. (laughs) And so God tells him, yes, you're right. So God answers him and basically says, in a little while, the king of Babylon will come and unfaithful Judah will receive her judgment. The kingdoms were separated at that time, Israel and Judah. The Jews in Jerusalem at the time of writing the book of Hebrews were the kingdom of Judah. So it's not an accident that the Hebrew author picks this verse because Habakkuk had to wait for the judgment, just like the Hebrew believers of that day had to wait for the judgment. And again, it was a promised judgment to those who were unfaithful. And then God tells him that the righteous in Judah didn't have to worry about receiving a judgment that did not belong to them if they would continue to place their faith in their God and his word to them and then wait on his timing. Then the righteous in Judah would live, stay alive, because of their faith. In other words, they would be able to stay alive because of their steadfast faith. And God would be pleased with those who stayed faithful because it's faith that pleases God. Because it's faith that apprehends the promises. And us apprehending the promises makes God happy. (laughs) why does he want us to trust him why does he want us to have faith so that we can enjoy the life and the communion with him that he always planned that humanity should have that makes him happy (laughs) but those who would choose on purpose to draw back into judaism with its law keeping and animal sacrifices would not be pleasing to god because they would not receive the life god wanted for them he didn't want them to be destroyed Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Don't be destroyed. It's that easy. (laughs) Verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. This drawing back is not about going back into a sinful lifestyle the way we think of it. Christians today say, oh yeah, they got saved and then they went back to the bar and they went back to inappropriate relationships. They went back, they went back, they went back. That's not what he's talking about. It's a sinful lifestyle, but it's not that kind of sinful lifestyle. They wanted to go back into religion. They wanted to go back into law-keeping. That's what they were going to draw back unto. 
they were going to go back into a lifestyle of fear, doubt, and unbelief in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. And that would lead them to go back into law-keeping and animal sacrifices to try to attain more right standing with God. And in doing so, would lead them into perdition. Many Christians think that perdition is hell. But according to the Strong's Concordance, it simply means to be fully destroyed. Just like the promises in Deuteronomy 28 to unfaithful Israel, where God promised them that if they were consistently unfaithful to their covenant, they would bring all the curses upon them until they were utterly destroyed. That's all it means. (laughs) And then the author assures his readers that the Hebrew believers in Jesus alive at that time are not part of unfaithful Judah. And that he is confident, because he knows them, (laughs) that they will be like Habakkuk, faithful to their father and their Jesus, even in the midst of ungodly government and great personal persecution. And so they will be the righteous ones who live, who escape the physical judgment, who will live by faith both physically and spiritually. Christians often assume that's what something means in Scripture when they read it. In verse 39 here, we are not of them who draw back into perdition. They assume that perdition means hell, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. When Christians read that, they're thinking about spiritual salvation. But our context is not spiritual salvation. In fact, the first half of the chapter is trying to convince them of how safe they are. And so this is about how unsafe they will be physically if they go back into Judaism. Christians often assume they know what something means in Scripture when they read it based on past experience or the similarity of words used in other passages. And this verse is a good example of that. The phrase, the saving of the soul, is not talking about the born-again salvation experience. It's talking about the preservation of their physical life. But we can't actually see that unless we look up the words in the concordance, which is also sometimes necessary if you want to correctly interpret the scriptures. The word saving here, usually when we see the word saving, it will be a root of either soteria, which is salvation, or sozo, which is translated save. Save, heal, deliver, protect, provide, make whole. It's neither one of those. It actually means preservation. To the preservation of the soul. And the soul is not our spirit man's salvation. The soul is your physical life. So he says, we are not of them who draw back unto utter destruction, but of them that believe to the preservation of their entire life. That's what it actually means. So, are the so-called scary verses really scary? Or are they simply misinterpreted? As believers today, we easily assume that we know what a particular verse means when in actuality, we've misinterpreted it. (laughs) So when we read something that sounds kind of scary to us in the scriptures, it's probably time to do some digging into the historical context, the scriptural context, and sometimes even into the definitions of the words we think we already understand. These Hebrew baby believers had a choice to make. Their salvation was sure. The whole first 10 chapters are telling them how safe they are in Jesus. 
Spiritually, you're safe. Don't be stupid and lose your life. (laughs) That's what he's talking about. Because there was a judgment coming on old covenant Israel, the last one. There are no more judgment. Jesus said now was the judgment of the world. The world's sins have already been judged because Jesus had to judge them to pay for them. We don't have to be afraid that our Father is going to leave us because we have a stupid moment. We do something ridiculous. (laughs) We fall down badly. He's not mad. He only wants to pick us up and help us. He knows what life is ahead. He knows what he has for us. He knows the happily ever after. He knows the life and life more abundant that he has waiting for us. But sometimes we get tired of waiting. (laughs) We try to do it in our own strength. (laughs) And the lesson is, we don't want our own way. We want his way. His way is always better. It is always more than we could ever ask or think in this life before we get to the next. He wants us to have all that he has waiting for us. But it's only by faith. The more we understand God's grace, that he did it all and gave everything to us, made us his sons, his heirs, that we've inherited God himself and all that's his. That's a big thing. (laughs) It's too big for our little tiny brains to really comprehend. But when we begin to see the truth of how finished our salvation is, how safe we really are, and the life of living in and through Christ, in and through the Holy Spirit, all the power that dwells inside of us that we can so easily lose sight of, just like these Hebrew baby believers. They lost sight of who and what they were because of what the world was saying, what the world was doing, what the world was threatening. And God said, stop looking out there. Look to me. Trust in what I've done to you and for you. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, for the book of Hebrews. Even though it is so old, it is so relevant. Even though we don't have a judgment coming upon the world, there's always evil lurking around every corner trying to take advantage of us as human beings. Father God, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be like these Hebrew baby believers that were afraid that Jesus wasn't enough. They weren't sure that they could trust God to protect them, to take them through their hard places. Father, but you told them, you prophesied, there is an escape. In scripture, it says God always provides a way of escape. Our Father always has escape routes for us. But they're only able to become ours by faith in his word, faith in his voice, faith in his finished work. So, Father God, we ask that you activate our faith. Cause us to hear you and hear you and hear you. Remind us to listen because you're always talking. You're always leading. You're always directing. And we thank you, Father God, for your word, that your word is so, so big. There's so much that we can take in and let it strengthen us and help us to stand firm in what you have done for us. So, Father God, I thank you for all of, all of what you have promised us. And that, Father, we believe we will receive that which we have believed upon. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.